Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Whether we've been creating elementary stone tools, traveling into space, or developing our own artificial intelligence. Since the beginning of time, humans have been fascinated by how our world works. Design thinking has exploded into the 21st century workplace. It's a methodology designed to put humans at the center of our work. This series explores where it came from and where it's going. From methodology to a philosophy for life, design thinking is changing the world. That's Sam Fry and I'm Richard Adams. Last time, we explored how well understood design thinking is and some of its criticisms. Today, we're going to focus in. We're going to interrogate some design thinking concepts. Concepts like co-creation, empathy, and failure. Act one. Can we co-create with empathy? Co-creation is the act of creating with stakeholders, whether they are part of the business or customers. Many modern products, particularly online services, exist in a state of constant change, continually listening to their customers. This episode is going to focus on the co-creation with customers. Here's Stiliana Minkowska. Uh, my name is Stiliana Minkowska and I'm a qualified architect. Stiliana is doing her master's in healthcare and design at the Royal College of Art. She has been studying how people give birth and whether we should have more mother-centric birthing spaces. I asked her whether she co-creates with users. That's how the process started. I just started interviewing people. And I interviewed both men and, and, and women, because for men, I guess, um, the experience is very different. For example, my partner said that now during the last birth, he just let me do my thing because he was just like, you just knew what you were doing. So I just wanted to be to be there and obviously support you should anything, there was anything you needed. I think the interviews really helped me see, okay, the way you even use languages. For example, initially when I started conducting the interviews, I called vaginal birth, natural birth. And one of my um, interviewees was very unhappy about this term because both her deliveries were cesarean. She said cesarean birth is natural birth. It's thanks to this medical advancement that I can, that both my life and my children's lives are still around. So in a way, it it really helped me use language in a way that everybody should feel included and obviously not all that birth consider themselves as women or not all partners are husbands you can have a female partner you can have a you can be a single mom or you can be a a victim trafficked woman or or raped and and all sorts of other awful experiences so i i guess it was interesting to to inform a project based on based on people's life stories because i think everybody brings their their life baggage to the birth room. And somehow this experience of procreation is affected by many experiences prior to to this point. So I wanted to make sure that it's very inclusive and, and human-centric. Diana is also a design student at the Royal College of Art. So uh, my name is Diana Kangizer. I am a Romanian multidisciplinary designer and I'm currently studying um, 
my master's at Royal College of Art and Imperial College London in Innovation Design Engineering. Diana stressed the importance of co-creating. If you produce something, it could be a system, it could be a product, whatever, as a designer, an inventor or engineer, and you know it will impact the community, a big, large community, a smaller community, you know it will impact the community, you should definitely include the community in your design process. She also explained that big companies have adapted to being co-creative. People are trying to be more multidisciplinary when it comes to team formation and interdisciplinary and inclusive and diverse, which is great. It's fantastic because this brings a lot of new, fresh perspectives into the problem. So then, is, you know, we, we, are, we are going to put an end to making products services, whatever, that don't really serve something or that don't really solve what we were trying to. Dr. Yankee Lee, a design researcher, explains that she sees co-creation as central to the process. I think so, because especially if you're looking at social issues, I always say, for example, in aging, I always talk to my students in their 20s that you're not even myself in my 40s, I'm not old enough to talk about aging because I haven't got the experience compared to someone who is 80 years old. So I think co-creation and collaboration is really about, do you really care about the subject matter you're looking at? So if you're looking at uh, scientific research, that we are not scientists by training, how can we know about it? So collaboration is is almost like you can't avoid that if you're really looking at complex issues. Yankee went further to explain how we should look to design with all stakeholders included, not even just human ones. I'm interested in how, we, how can we as a designers design with the others. So the others, like my mentor at the Royal College, uh, Professor Roger Coleman, once say, uh, design have excluded many people. So at his time, it's about older people and people with disability. And we all the young and able-bodied, but who been excluded have not been included in design. So this is why he started the whole design age movement in the UK. But I think for me, I took it even further. I want to design with the others. So working on project about multi-species. So how about we are the human can we design with the tree? Can we design with the um, insects? And I think this is the other's concept is really interesting in how to make a design or discipline become more inclusive. Design thinking only works well when it's collaborative. The key to that is to listen and to show empathy. Try to understand the user's needs. Design thinking also tells us that we must work as multidisciplinary teams and collaborate as complete and full organizations with customers. Next, we'll look at how this is creating a culture change. Act two, is this a big culture change? Organizations have historically operated top down. So how do we create a culture of collaboration and empathy? For organisations looking to create a culture of design thinking, they have to start by looking at their teams and working out who needs to be involved, what their roles are and how they have to interact with each other. Design thinking often emerges in companies as a way of unlocking responsive innovation. So who would need to be involved in this? 
Joseph Pacau, a global innovation designer studying at Royal College of Art, has some great thoughts on this. Anyone who's creating or who's, who's contributing to creation of a product is effectively designing. And design works best, as you said, when it's empathic and when it's aware of people's needs. So that point of, you know, that point of education and that type of mindset, I think, is, is crucial for a designer. Uh, I would also argue that empathy is great and it's one of the best gifts that I guess like product design ergonomics and then human-centered design have really given us. But empathy is still five people trying to understand the context and needs of hundreds of millions. And I think as we were learning, like, people are very complex and people have very different needs and different communities have vastly different needs and being able to design a product that really works for everybody. I'm not sure if empathy is the only, or if it's actually a tool that's very well suited. I would argue that the next step for design is probably representation, which is I guess where like participatory design process really starts to shine. Figuring out how to bring users actually into the design process in the sense of co-creation or maybe through some sort of means of collective intelligence or social dreaming are probably ways to be much more democratic in the end. And, you know, it's crazy. It's actually crazy when you think about that Instagram is a platform that's built by 160 people. And it's used by, what, 1.5 billion people around the world. It's, it's, it's insane. How do, how do 160 people decide what lives should, uh, you know, a, a, a fifth of a planet live? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the, when you start thinking about design as, as a sort of a social means for social change, or, or rather maybe social design is a term that, that we could use, you can't not make that a democratic process at that point. And when you start thinking about the sort of planetary ecosystem, like you have to involve people in their opinions. And empathy is great, but it's it's got nothing on representation, right? There's this lovely, lovely part in Marine by Design where Montero says this thing is is uh, this is on the topic of gender equality. Um, you're designing for women, so you're you're you you send your five white male designers to take empathy courses. Uh, what about hiring women? They're not extinct. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> so how do you get to a state where everyone is involved in design? Surely we are talking about a huge change in culture and mindset. How works a design lead at IBM think so? I mean, one way to answer that is that there's a, a kind of fun relationship between like design thinking as a methodology and design thinking being used as a culture change technique. So one way to answer that is that, right, like how, how do you how do you solve the problem of getting people to think more um, in a more designerly way? Well, one thing that you can do is like you can start small, right? You can prototype something. So one of the things that I've seen be successful is just starting on really small projects in order to demonstrate success, learn. Um, sometimes like programs think a little bit too broad in terms of, you know, one inch deep and 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 like ocean ocean wide. So starting small and demonstrating value on a small scale, being collaborative in terms of very important, having the right people in the room. I mean, I can't emphasize enough like how important 
executive leadership is like, or whatever the organization is, whether it's a hundred people and there's one person at the top or there's 300,000 people. And there's like, you know, one person at the top, making sure that all those people are involved in the process is really important. Um, because that's how organizations work. Honestly, the most important thing is getting to the point where you are getting real impact on it, right? Like you're really seeing, like you're working on real projects that are getting real results and that it's not this superficial level of practice, but that you actually are able to demonstrate real results so that people can witness, ah, okay, that's how it works. People see those aha moments. IBM has changed its culture through having a series of design thinking communities of practice. They call these design thinking chapters. Jessica Tremblay is the global chapter lead. I am the chapter head, head, I guess, head of the chapter heads for the 100 plus enterprise design thinking global chapters that we have here at IBM. So bringing that community together, getting them skilled in whatever they need to order in order to help scale the practice of enterprise design thinking within IBM. Jessica explains. The the chapters themselves, so they 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 started popping up and there were these localized communities that started forming about three, four years ago. And the design program office noticed, oh wait, there's these these you know localized like hyper localized communities that started forming around the practice of design thinking, and they they made them official. They're on the Enterprise Design Thinking website right now, but they're places that people can go to if they want to upskill themselves, if they want to try out something with design thinking, if they're just curious, want to learn more, um, or if they want to become a design thinking coach, it's a great place to go and practice and and, and up their skills. So each, each design thinking chapter kind of has its own uh, its own flavor and its own purpose in a way. So we have uh, business vertical chapters. So there's HR chapters. There's ones that dedicated to digital sales, uh, but there's also just just uh, localized uh, location based chapters. So any any major location in the United States. There's there's uh, one in London. There's Bobligan, um, Germany. A mix of humans of people of all of these all of these practitioners who are just so passionate about design thinking and wanting to to use it in their day-to-day and and teach others um, how to use it as well. Let's also talk about failure for a second. In all walks of life, we are being told to become comfortable with failure, to use it to learn from mistakes. But what actually do we mean by that? Here's Amanda Foreman from Zone, a cognizant business. I mean, we don't like to fail, right? People don't like failing. I don't like failing. And so again, it goes back to that paradigm shift. I think a lot of people pay lip service to that in business, in life, and just in general. Um, Oh yeah, yeah. You got to learn from your failures or just fail fast. But like, really, we just want everything to be perfect every time. And so I think that there's a lot to be said about the culture of a company. So if a company is like willing to trust people that they've hired or trust their staff to say, we want you to like, we want you to think big. We want you to dream. We want you to be really strategic and we don't want you to limit your thinking. And we want you to try new things because in the trying new things, you'll come across some great things. Like you need five bad ideas to come up with a good idea type of a thing. Um, But I think that's a very specific 
company culture. And I, I wouldn't say that that is very common. So does design thinking really encourage failure? Amanda continues. That's a bit of a misconception of what design thinking is, because in a sense, the application of design thinking is meant to de-risk things. It's not meant to be this sort of woolly process where you don't end up with something valuable. It's meant to test ideas so you don't spend two years developing a product that nobody even wants. And so I think it can be a bit of a, um, yeah, a little bit of a misconception around, yeah, it's not about just this whole random process with no accountability and no outputs. It's really almost a way of thinking and testing something so that you can de-risk it before you invest in it. So I think some of it goes back to a bit of a misconception of what it actually is. Of course, when we talk about failure in this context, we're actually talking about it in a similar way to the way the scientific method embraces failure. Try, test, fail. Try, test, fail, succeed. Here's how it works again. I think the scientific method and design thinking have parallels and things that overlap, and, and they're also quite different, and I think they're actually quite complementary. The scientific method, its impact, or science, its impact on society, our society is, like, you know, impossible to fathom, right? Like, since the Enlightenment, like, science and all of the values that it imbues with us around logic and precision and reason uh, are pervasive in the way that we think. But of course, when we talk about culture change, this is not just limited to a change within organisations or product teams. It's about changing how we are trained to think in the first place. How Works continues. You know, and we teach the scientific method in school. Uh, we teach from a very young age people's ability to use like uh, very sterile conditions to test a hypothesis to come up with a truth. And that's something that we teach multiple times from like K through 12. And I think it's interesting to compare the scientific method and design thinking because I think a very similar thing happens where if once you start teaching design thinking, it imbues people, it imbues principles in the same way that science, like scientific method imbues principles around logic and precision and reason and and sterility in finding answers. Um, design thinking imbues principles around empathy and collaboration. Um, yes, iteration like science uh, and really divergent thinking, like how can we think of new ideas? And so like when we think about like what gets me excited about bringing design thinking into our public education system is not just like the teaching of a process or like the teaching of a set of checklists that someone can like then, oh, someone knows a new process. What's really exciting is when it starts, when we start teaching that at a young level and people start being imbued with those new concepts just in the same way that like people are imbued with concepts around logic, precision, reason with science, people are imbued with concepts around empathy, collaboration, divergent thinking, iteration with design thinking. So I think that's what's so powerful is that when we start teaching new methods, new ways of thinking, just the infinite kind of uh, ripple effects of how someone then goes out into the world and the, the new mindset that they bring to the world, really. How is evangelizing about educating everyone to work collaboratively, iteratively, and with empathy? This is not about teaching people to design. It's about educating people on the principles that are valuable when designing. So far, we've looked at what it takes to design collaboratively, 
not just as organizations, but also with our customers or users. We've learned that this isn't an easy change, that this is difficult. It's a change in the whole culture and mindset. So, if we are going to work in this way, empathize with each other, and be comfortable with showing when we are wrong, we are going to have to really trust each other, right? Trust. We've talked before about how designing collaboratively often means bringing people together in the same spaces, if not physically the same spaces, then the same conceptual domains. In companies, they do this through workshops or collaborative spaces. In other areas of design, this might be done in the studios. Working together allows us to establish relationships with one another and to build trust. Tassie Ellen Thompson teaches design at the University of Southeastern Norway. One of the things that design thinking in terms of a kind of, as it's known generally in business, is where people come together to figure out a problem. And there's a lot of body communication, non-verbal communication that happens in that time. And the solutions you come up with are very, very much shaped by where you choose to do that design thinking. It's really well discussed, um, much more eloquently than I could ever, by Richard Sennett in his book, The Craftsman, uh, a really worthy read, and, and also his work on his book Together, where he talks about how collective learning works. And, you know, everything I've read about design thinking is all about, you know, giving away your ideas, sharing with others, and that's great, but you do have to develop trust and I have a feeling that the one thing that we have to get more used to with this digital creative life is to take risks and to trust people that we've not like been in the same room with those pheromones those I you know that all the little things that tell give you some impression that you might be able to trust this person with your ideas or with your the vulnerability of you know your your knowledge you know so that I, I wonder for design and art students how I'm working at the moment how we work around this idea of familiarity and trust that normally we would build up in the workshop or in the studio in the design studio and it comes from having coffee with someone or you know, or somebody's, can I, can you move your jacket? And they touch your stuff to hang up your jacket. Little things like that, that Richard Sennett has talked about, the bodily uh, actions of shared studio space. And we're missing all that. So we have to think smartly about how we gently replace that online. So companies have embraced this approach as it often solves a problem whereby teams would previously often mistrust each other. Here's Robert Huckman Jr. from Tangible UX. The sort of set of design thinking activities um, that can be performed amongst these, you know, sort of multidisciplinary, cross-functional um, groups of people 
uh, works wonders for building trust among them. Um, in that previous manufacturing line type development process where everything happens in a sequence or happens in a chain, you know, there, there was that, that siloed uh, universe where engineers didn't really talk to designers, designers didn't really talk to the researchers. There might be a little, you know, little overlap in the handoff from one to the next, but there, you know, there wasn't a lot of collaboration there. And so the designers, you know, are often interpreting or misinterpreting stuff that's been handed to them by the researchers. And then engineers are doing the same thing with the designers. So, uh, and that ended up causing a lot of mistrust and design thinking, uh, you know, pulling that, pulling those, those groups of people together uh, into a much more collaborative unit and collaborative uh, system of communication means that they're able to understand each other's perspectives a lot better and they're able to see what the other is up against. Amanda Foreman reflected on this idea too. In any relationship, the more you based upon assumptions, like the more you have a tendency to potentially be in rough water there. Like if you're just assuming, oh yeah, like this is what this person thinks or this is what this person wants or like this is how I should relate to them. Like you have, yeah, much more opportunity to fall into like getting into arguments about things or finding that you actually like maybe didn't assume correctly. And so I think that whole idea of design, the, the methodology of design thinking and the philosophy of it, of like, just ask people, just talk to people. Like, don't assume that you know what they want, just ask. And I think that that, like you said, that whole trust thing, I've never thought about it quite like that, but in some ways it's like elimination. It's, it's just like getting to know people. It's like building a relationship with somebody where you're like, Oh, I will understand how to build something for you. If I know you, as opposed to if I just assume I know you and I never talk to you. And then, and then you might also be more likely to then utilize what I'm building because you know that where I'm coming from and that I'm like talking to you about it. And that's sort of, yeah, that's an interesting thing to think about it in like relational terms. But I think the trust thing is really accurate. Design thinking is encouraging people to approach ideas based on a conceptual model that is in some ways part of the wider design process but it's also encouraging them to see and understand that empathy and collaboration are as key as iteration and failure. But it's also a way to encourage approaches that organizations have historically been resistant to. Organizations have been incredibly siloed. They understand scientific methods, but have been slow to embrace collaboration, user centricity, openness, and trust. Design thinking, whether you like the term or not, has helped organization embrace exactly these approaches. Design thinking is having an impact on the way that people work together to solve problems. But as companies use it more and they have more aha moments, their understanding deepens too, which is leading to an evolution in what design thinking is. This episode was written, recorded and produced by Sam Fry and Richard Adams. Thank you also to our guests, Alex Stanek, Amanda Foreman, Hal Wirtz, Jessica Tremblay, Joseph Picard, Lisa A. Armour, Robert Huckman, Stiliana Minkowska, Tassie Ellen Thompson, Dr. Yankee Lee and Diana Kangiza for being interviewed. All music from this podcast is available on a Creative Commons license, downloaded at freemusicarchive.org, 
Artists include Alex Production, Circus Marcus, Croanda, and Jezar. Don't miss an episode of this series by subscribing to this podcast feed. Also, please give us a rating to help us in the podcast charts. Find out more at technique.create-hub.co.uk. Next time on Technique Explores Design Thinking. The reason why business and technology are using design thinking is because it provides a lot of value. Because various stakeholders have different competing visions of what valuable is. I think it is really encouraging to see that, you know, companies are not necessarily sort of losing faith in design thinking altogether. I think that's a ridiculous thought. And we have seen that, no, that just simply doesn't lead to good thing. We look at how design thinking is changing what organizations see as valuable. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.